0: Welcome to a News Laundry Podcast. This is Global Summits, Where Are We Going? Hi, I'm Birad
1: Swain and this is News Laundry Podcast. Global Summits, Where Are We Going? 164 countries, 5 days of negotiation. Yes, with an additional days extension to finalize the draft and 14 years of talks. And finally, the 10th Ministerial Conference of the World Trade Organization was a non-deal. Worse, it made an ambiguous statement on the Doha development round and almost laid an RIP stone on international solidarity. Considering this follows the Paris COP 21, the contrast could not have been starker. Today, we are discussing the 10th Ministerial Conference of the World Trade Organization. Yes, that multilateral world trade governing body which champions rules-based trade and where all countries, the rich and the poor, have one vote each. Considering India has the highest global burden of undernutrition, an unparalleled agrarian crisis, and farmer suicide, no other conference could be as important. We should discuss WTO 10th Ministerial. Kya khoya, kya paya? How did US and EU play the game is there a permanent wedge between the developing and the least developed countries now? Is regional trade pacts the new road ahead? And India's pitch and participation. What is at stake for Indian agriculture and public stock that is meant to feed 67% of Indian poor? And cotton subsidies? What about trade in services and manufacturing and public procurement? Finally, the road ahead for farmers in emerging economies, the developing countries, and you and me. We have a fantastic panel to discuss this. Full disclosure, we did try to get two sitting negotiators from India on the show, and both declined at last minute, stating they would wait for the Commerce Minister, Ms. Nirmala Sitaraman, to make the statement first on the floor of the parliament. But before I bring in the panelists, please remember, Programs like these are possible because of independent media. When corporates pay, corporates' agenda is served. When people pay, your agenda is served. Please support independent media. Please support news laundry. Help us to keep news free. Now, let's listen into the key highlights of the Nairobi Declaration.
2: On the 19th of December at Nairobi, the 10th WTO Ministerial Conference concluded. It was the first WTO conference to be held in Africa a continent of 54 countries. The conference was chaired by Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Foreign Affairs and International Trade, Amina Mohammad. WTO Director General Robert Azevado and his Geneva Secretariat were actively running the show. The most concrete outcome was, it started with 162 member states, but concluded with 164 on the rolls. Liberia and Afghanistan being the latest to join the trade body. The Nairobi package has special provisions for the least developed countries. Developed countries are expected to remove agricultural subsidies immediately except for a few products, while developing countries are to do so by 2018. Public stock holding which is key to India, considering the Food Security Act that is mandated to reach 67% Indians can continue but a permanent settlement needs to be found by 2017 else the peace clause kicks in This means India and every country stocking food grains produced within the country to feed its own citizens will be violating WTO rules. The continuation of the Doha Development Agenda, which is the focus of the WTO ministerial till date, to remove trade inequities, has not been supported unanimously. This is the first meeting where the Doha Round was not reaffirmed by all countries. In fact, some member states like the US and the EU bloc wanted it discontinued. The Indian delegation was led by Ms. Nirmala Sitaraman, Minister of Commerce, and her secretary, Rita Teotia. Ms. Sitaraman has expressed her disappointment, though she has also stated that India has not lost ground gained earlier.
1: Now let's listen into to Mr. Ajayvir Jhakar first. He wears multiple hats farmer, farm leader and editor of Farmers Forum magazine. He's a member of the Bharat Krishak Samaj. He's joining us today strictly as a practicing farmer via phone on road from Anand to Baroda in Gujarat. Ajay, your first reaction to the Nairobi declaration.
3: My first reaction to the Nairobi declaration is that I think it was on expected lines. I'm not surprised at what's happened unlike lots of people who are surprised at the government response or, or how the de- developed countries have uh, played their hand.
1: But did you, did you think that considering in the Bali ministerial in 2013, government did say that we want to revisit the agreement on agriculture, we want to revise the eighty six eighty eight price base of the Uruguay agreement, and that we want a permanent solution on public stockholding, they were far more aggressive, that they would actually show some... Hard, they, play, they should play hardball in Nairobi, or you, you thought that this, this was just um, on the predicted lines? Especially I, I, considering I, after, after Bali ministerial. I, I think
3: the, the delegation was not able to withstand the pressure that the de- developed countries put on countries like India. And also, I think that... So, I mean, I, I think they have not been able to uh, withstand the pressure that they have put on us, whether it be Climate Change Summit in Paris, whether it be the WTO program in uh, Nairobi. Uh, the discussions and deliberations. We've not been able to do it. And I also think that it is partly because our negotiators aren't trained to negotiate on one. And second, I also think that they were not prepared. They had not done their homework properly on what to expect at the deliberation. Because to go for any deliberations, it's also important to know what the other side is going to be saying or proposing rather than just giving your own side of the story. And that's what I think So our people have been doing all along is they go with their own agenda and they speak it out. But they're not prepared to understand what the other party is, has come prepared with more information and uh, what their agenda is. So their market research, their forecasting, their vision, I think so. all, all those are lacking.
1: Um, For our listeners, the point Ajay is making is really important also because two sitting negotiators have opted out in the last minute from our show, saying that they would wait for the Commerce Minister Nirmala Sitaraman to make a statement in the parliament first. And the other thing that Ajay does say is about scenario mapping and having lived experience of the issues that you are going to be negotiating on. Reams and reams of literature from Timothy Wise to Devinder Sharma have been written about how the 86-88 base price is absolutely abominable. And in our curtain raiser episode, Professor Sachin Chaturvedi of RIA said some heads should have rolled. Of our negotiators, exactly like Ajay is saying, of people who actually agreed to 8688 base price considering the runaway food inflation India has seen. So, um Ajay, on cotton subsidies are continuing. US and you have committed to end agricultural subsidies immediately just to put pressure on India and China and other developed emerging economies to also end their subsidies by 2018. The fine print is still unclear. Um, what do you think? Who dip six who and other than under preparedness do you think this game of calling off their own subsidies just grandstanding on it was something that we were taken on by surprise because of that declaration there
3: so see when, when you when you look at wto first of all for, i just want to go back a little uh, in time yes say that over the last one decade over the last 10-15 years we were not we we did not reprogram our pro, our subsidy and our support program to farmers to be WTO compliant, it could have been WTO compliant while at the same time fulfilling the needs of the of the poor people in India of our our particular our requirements of our own country, and it was it was possible to do that. For example, we did not even notify WTO of our subsidies for 10 years, so there. I, I can understand that the developed countries are a little skeptical about what we even say on the world stage. That if we will hold on to it or not hold on to it, and unfortunately, this government has inherited a set of problems that were given to it by UPA one and UPA two negotiators. So, so they are already facing a, a loaded dice on on, on that on that on that platform. So that's that's one part of it. The second part of it is that. Your specific question was of on cotton subsidies. See, till a few years ago, USA was giving around three U.S. billion dollars of subsidies. So, as a farmers' organization, when we, we called up a few people in USDA, we called up a few people in seed companies in the U.S. and we found out how many cotton farmers were there in the U.S. So, to our surprise, they said they're around twenty thousand cotton farmers. One organization told us there were eighteen thousand cotton farmers. One organization said there were around twenty-three, 000, twenty-four thousand cotton farmers. If twenty thousand cotton farmers are going to get three billion dollars in subsidies, which amounts to something like twenty thousand crore rupees for twenty thousand farmers or twenty-four thousand farmers, which actually translates to something like seventy-six lakh rupees or eight seventy-five to eighty lakh rupees per farmer on an average. Now, now those kinds of subsidies cannot be substituted by whatever wordplay the de- the developed world is doing. Right. When 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 the developed world gives. Subsidies to their farmers, they call they call it support. But when Indian, Indian government gives subsidies to Indian farmers, they call it subsidies. Because how we deliver subsidies is what defines what a subsidy is. If if it was given on a basis of the land holding that you have, it would not be defined as a trade-distorting subsidy. That's that's how they, the the word plays. That's how the fine print is. And and that's that's something that clearly needs to be clearly needs to be understood.
1: Right, and what do you think is the road ahead for Indian farmers? What what do you, what would you like the Indian government and the negotiators well, to do going forward?
3: So, lo- lots of farmer organisations, lots of civil society in India has has very clearly said that we should have walked out of WTO, we should have got out from the table rather than signing it, and which I completely disagree with, even as a farmers' organisation, because this this goes to the very foundation of how we visualise India to be, how we forecast forecast the coming future. Now, most of Indian government and most of Indian farmers are of the view that we will always need, we will always have to t- talk in terms of food security, we will not be able to grow enough for a for a, for a for a population who where the economy is expanding, our diets are changing, our, diet, our dietary patterns are changing. And because of climate change, people believe that India, even Indians believe that we will not be able to grow enough of the right kind of food to feed our own nation. But as a farmer's organization, I completely disagree with all of them. I think the only thing, hold, I think Indi- only thing holding back Indian farmers from producing a large surplus of most things is, is, the, bad far- is the bad farm policy made by policy makers who none of them are farmers without consulting farmers. So, and things are definitely improving. And I think going forward, we will be producing most of the things in surplus. To what our demand is in spite of all the climate change talk in spite of all the dietary changes that are that are going to be happening and if we believe as i believe that we will be producing surplus then we will need export markets now to get export markets we need world trade agreement trade agreements I, that's why i think it is very important that india has to sign these trade agreements because otherwise who are farmers going to sell their excess produce to that's 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 one basic part that needs to be understood. When governments, second part is when governments, de- developing country governments like India, when we go and negotiate at trade, ex- these trade agreements, we, we we use the word farmers, but we're actually talking about consumers. We're not talking about farmers. And this is the terminology is farmers, but actually you're looking at consumers. And increasingly in the last 10 years, since 2007 when the prices, food prices started to rise, most, developing food importing countries do not want subsidies in the developed world to reduce because it would increase the cost of importing food for themselves. So they are not even asking for reduction in subsidies in in the developed world. They're more focused on internal trying to defend their own subsidies. I think rather than defend their own subsidies it's better to be more aggressive and ask for reduction in subsidies in other countries on one side and rather than trying to defend our own subsidies, we should we should look within ourselves and try and restructure our subsidies in a way that they're more productive and they actually reach the bottom of the pyramid which they are not reaching today. Most of the subsidies in India are going to irrigated farmers while the poverty most of the poverty exists in rain-fed areas. So if we were to restructure our subsidies, not only would we become WTO compliant, we would actually make sure that the subsidy programs would reach the really... Uh, people who are in more need of that. So I, I think it's it's not as bad a situation as it is. But the belief in the policymakers, in our negotiators, has to be there. They have to actually decide for once. And if they have already decide, if they have to decide for once that we will be surplus. We will be a food surplus nation, wanting to export our produce. Then you have a you have, you have to have a different strategy for it. Right. If you're always going to be importing, you will always be importing.
1: Right. Thank you so much, Ajay, for making time. I'm sure the late Sri Saraj Joshi would also be very happy with what the statements that you just made. And for our listeners, Saraj Joshi was an economist and a farm leader who passed away on December twelfth. And would pro- and Aj- most of what Ajay says would uh, are basically the positions that Sharan Joshi would also be taking. Thank you so much, thank you. wish you a safe flight and we'll continue with the panel discussion. Thanks Ajay. Bye-bye. Let's bring in the panelists now. It is trade and agriculture. So we had to have Devinder Sharma, journalist, trade analyst, farmers champion. He was also part of our curtain raiser episode. He's joining us via phone from Chandigarh. Welcome Mr. Sharma.
4: Yeah, thank you. Hi.
1: Bipul Chatterjee, Executive Director, Cuts International, where Cuts stands for Consumer Unity Trust Society, and also Executive Director of the CT, Centre for International Trade, Economics and Environment, a consumer rights body and a trade watch body. We had Cuts International Secretary General Pradeep Singh Mehta and the curtain raiser too. Bipul is joining us via phone from Jaipur. Welcome,
5: Bipul. Thank you.
1: Ranja Sengupta, senior researcher at the Third World Network, a transnational alternative policy group that works on sustainability, development, and North-South relations. Here, North-South, for our listeners, is a shorthand for the rich and poor. She's joining via phone from... Actually, she's joining via Skype from Kolkata. Welcome, Ranja. Thank you, Biraj. So, four days of negotiation that extended to another day before going to the conference. Ms. Sita Raman had promised to play hardball, but various reports from UK's Guardian to our own first post seems to suggest United States and European, and European Union played hardball much better. Your first reactions to the outcome, Bipul?
5: Yeah, I think you were right that the United, both the United States and the European Union, they played it very hard. And I think uh, at the end of the day, they could push the agenda that they wanted to push, whether it is going to help India or whether it is going to pose more problems for all countries, that we need to see. But you were right that both United States and Europe, they played a very hard game and somehow we could withstand it, but perhaps much more could have been done.
0: Ranja, your first reactions? Yeah, as you said, I mean, they definitely played hardball. But they have been playing hardball throughout the 20 years of the WTO negotiations. And this time, it was very clear that they were putting critical issues at stake, the survival of the Doha round. And they wanted to put uh, new issues. And they really pushed hard on this. And as always, we do see developing countries kind of collapsing at the end. And this is what happened. And I'm very clear that. I mean, some of the text is subject to interpretation. We know there's a fight ahead in Geneva on many of these critical issues. Uh, but I think we really didn't get much. I mean, I'm talking uh, on. I mean, I'm talking about India. We didn't really get much, and we have been pushed back. We have been actually dealt a blow on some of these issues. Mr. Sharma.
4: Well, there is nothing surprising uh, to know that uh, America and uh, European Union had uh, played hard. I think they all, always uh, do it, as uh, Ranja said. And also we know developing countries have uh, off and on uh, are more or less uh, buckled uh, under pressure and uh, often. But uh, this time I think what is startlingly, startlingly very clear is that uh, developing countries, uh, uh, in my understanding, uh, no longer matter in the way they should in multilateral uh, negotiations. So I think this is the beginning of the end of uh, of uh, negotiations, multilateral negotiations, in a manner that uh, developing countries uh, can, as you began by saying, uh, one vote, uh, one country, I think is uh, no longer important. And I think developing countries have to blame themselves for it.
1: Ah, strong words there. So United States had made it clear that they wanted Doha round done away with. In fact, Pradeep, Bipul's colleague had written a think piece that we shared in our curtain-raiser episode regarding pulling the plug on Doha and how some countries are pushing for that. But what our listeners would like like us to discuss is what happened to that spirit of internationalism and multilateralism? How and why did the developing countries not stand together? India and China should be used to intense pressure in international negotiations by now especially considering we've been claiming that we are emerging economies and second and fourth largest economy in the world for past so many years. Was there a wedge between the developing and the least developed countries? What exactly happened, Um, Ranja, since you were there in Nairobi? um, Give us some insider story.
0: Yeah, as you said, I mean, till even the uh, night of the 18th, you know, it was supposed to conclude on the 18th, but it got extended by a day. But even uh, till the night of the 18th, we had spoken to the uh, minister. And in fact, we were all kind of holding banners and signs outside. And she came out to speak to us when she was leaving. And she said, We are holding strong. So we don't really know why uh, India then actually signed on to that document. But I think the green room discussion that, uh, you know, the, the just five countries. USA, EU, Brazil, India, and China gave the others also a, an impression that they were being left out. And there was probably some, you know, they were unsure then about the text and whether to agree or not to agree. But, uh, you know, always during these ministerials, the developed countries, especially the USA, really uses the media machine to always say there's a division between developed developing countries, between developing and least developed countries. And this time, in fact, the night of the 18th, the African group came out very strongly through their civil society links and also through other channels, saying that there is no division between us, we are united. But I think next day, after the G5 discussion, when the text came out, most countries were not even given an option to actually change the text. They could have, of course, walked out, which we know uh, neither the developing countries nor the least developed countries did, actually,
1: including um, India. And for our listeners, this becomes really important because uh, this was the first ministerial conference being organized in Africa. And African all the 54 African nations were out of the green room, so much for justice and equity and shared conversation. And um, like we had discussed in the COP21 post-event reactive, India is always vilified for deep-sixing. Um, international, uh, uh, international conventions if it doesn't have its way. So when you are under that kind of Western media attack, sometimes Indian negotiators might also feel the heat about walking out, not signing and deep-sixing because that's, that's the kind of terms which are used. Um, thank you, Ranja. Ha, so Devinderji, your take on the wedge between developing and least developed countries and what happens to the spirit of internationalism and multilateralism?
4: Well, I think let's be very clear that uh, India, Brazil, South Africa for quite some time were trying to demonstrate that they are not uh, part of the developing world. So this is not the first time that there is, you know, this impression that the wedge has been created. I think they themselves wanted uh, that wedge to be created. And I remember those days when Kamal Nath, used to negotiate for, in, on India's behalf, uh, he always used to give an impression that uh, we are different from the developing world, and uh, I see no reason why the developing world should be having a trust in uh, these uh, three emerging economies. Uh, having said that, uh, now I think the, the impression is that uh, along with the U.S. and European Union, the rest of the three countries that matter are, is uh, Brazil, China and India, and the rest can go to, you know, uh, go, go to hell. And that is what I think uh, the WTO is now coming down to very clearly. And that, I think, raises a bigger question uh, about the future of uh, multilateral negotiations, uh, whether, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was something that we expected 20 years after NWTO was uh, was formed. And uh, now we see, as I said earlier, uh, the, the, the beginning of the end of uh, the kind of multilateralism that we all believed in.
1: Um, Bipul, your take?
4: Yeah. I think uh, in Nairobi,
5: uh, it was very clear that uh, five countries EU, USA then Brazil China and India they are calling the shots i mean they are negotiating among themselves huh? i spoke to yeah it, it it was clear in nairobi that these five countries uh, US EU India Brazil and uh, China they were negotiating among themselves there is not much correction between that negotiation and what was happening on other areas of negotiation. For example, there are two decisions which were taken in favour of least developed countries. I spoke to a number of delegations from LDCs on those two decisions and many of them told me that while there is not much opposition from India, Brazil or South Africa or China on those decisions, they are expecting much more support from us to take forward uh, further negotiations uh, to make those decisions more concrete in favor of least developed countries. So I see that uh, I don't know whether there is a clear wedge between the developing world and the least developed countries, but yes, there that disconnect was too evident in Nairobi. And in fact, uh, one of the ministers from the least developed countries, he told me that uh, there are 162 students in the class, and, but only five could take the examination. That was how he described the uh, Nairobi negotiations.
1: Scathing words there from Bipul, and especially from the least developed countries on the way the big five have behaved. For our listeners, we've been losing Bipul the line has some trouble and we are trying to get him on the show. His perspective is really important, especially because A, he was in Nairobi, B, Katz has a very important voice and C, his perspective is different from Ranja and Devinder Sharma. So we'll record his response to all the questions and now we are going ahead with Ranja and Devinder as long as we are also trying to cook him up. The 12 Pacific Rim countries, barring China, have signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Now there are talks between the United States and EU bloc on the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Asia and NAFTA are the other regional trade bodies. Is this global multilateral trade rule now just a theoretical exercise? Considering everyone seems to be going regional and bilateral, that seems to be the case. Also, what does this coherence of regional deals with WTO rules actually mean in practice? Um, Mr. Sharma, what do you
4: think? Well, I think it's, uh, it's quite apparent that uh, when the WTO began, uh, the, the impression that was given to all of us was, uh, as I think I have repeated this uh, earlier also, is that, uh, you know, unless we have a multilateral uh, agreement or multilateral negotiations or multilateral uh, decisions, uh, you know, we will go into that cumbersome process of uh, going bilateral and so on. But uh, uh, this is what the economists used to tell us. But I think uh, they have been proved wrong because the world loves uh, bilateral agreements, and uh, we are seeing about 300 plus bilateral agreements, and plus the uh, Trans-Pacific and Trans um, the uh, treaties on investment and services coming together is an indication that they they want to give a damn to WTO. They were they used WTO for some years till they could draw some benefit out of it, and eventually WTO will also become an, another kind of a bilateral or a kind of a TT you know Trans. Uh, um, Atlantic or trans-Pacific uh, kind of agreement that is being signed. Now, why I'm saying this is because uh, if you see it very clearly, the 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 way India is of course saying that uh, we have uh, uh, we will we'll
1: come concerned. to will come to the India's pitch and participation in the next segment immediately, Sharmaji. Just wait okay. a minute, uh, Ranja your take on this. What does this coherence of regional trade deals with WTO rules actually mean in practice?
0: See, that's a very dangerous word. I mean, in the current usage, it's become a dangerous word. Coherence between WTO and the FTAs. I'll tell you why. Because the you know the FTAs are pr- proliferating, because the developed countries actually couldn't get what they wanted through the WTO, because all countries had to agree there was this single undertaking principle. That means many agreements which they really wanted got kind of locked in the negotiations. So therefore, they were pushing the FTAs and issues Which are coming? Which could be coming in now? The new issues, issues like the Singapore issues, government procurement, investment, competition policy, etc. That's what they are pushing in through the FTAs. Uh, I agree with uh, uh, Devinderji that you know the FTAs have become more and more prolific their their impacts will be deeper and more extensive than compared to the WTO and they are mattering they are pinching actually more and more and they are far more dangerous actually than the WTO i mean we have seen in the 20 years of WTO that it has absolutely failed to deliver to the objectives of developing countries, especially the poor and the marginalized in developing countries. And the FTAs actually challenge these objectives to a far greater extent. But now, in the name of coherence between the WTO and FTAs, the same issues which are being pushed through the ftas are now going to be pushed through the wto so they keep saying we must check for coherence so countries if a large number of countries have given into these 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 provisions in for example the tpp or nafta and biraj don't forget we are also involved in the asean plus 6 the regional comprehensive economic partnership or right. rcep, RCEP. yes yes yeah rcep so that so those are there on our doorsteps. and so they will say that if a large number of countries have signed on to these provisions then why can't they sign on to these provisions in the WTO and that is how they are pushing the new issues so so this whole coherence word you know has become a bad word for developing countries now
5: yeah I think as you, as you have rightly pointed out there's a plethora of regional and bilateral agreements which have taken place and which are going to, which are taking place and I think which are going to take place what would be interesting to see and I think this is going to happen sooner than later, that the United States, they would try to import some of those uh, issues which they have discussed, negotiated, and came to a deal at the uh, regional forum like TPP. They would like them to come to the WTO. Like Issues like investment policy, competition policy, state-owned enterprises, then uh, uh, public procurement, then digital economy, digital commerce, those issues are definitely going to come to the multilateral forum, uh, which is the WTO, and it is to be seen whether uh, U.S. would like to uh, push them. Of course, they're going to push them for multilateral negotiations, as evident from the Nairobi Ministerial Declaration, If that does not happen, then they would go for plurilateral negotiations, which means that not all WTO members would be negotiating them, but only the like-minded group of countries among the WTO membership would negotiate them. So that is very clear, and it is uh, time for us, I think, to take a very hard stock of the situation and see how best we can approach these issues from the point of view of how beneficial they could be for the future of the Indian economy.
1: For our listeners, a thought experiment. If U.S. talks to Burkina Faso, or Brazil talks to Mozambique, or India talks to Ethiopia, is there actually anything bilateral considering the absolute power asymmetry? Let's talk India's pitch and participation. In Bali ministerial, India's pushback on peace clause was a respite to many. But in August 2015, India holding out on the trade facilitation agreement was hailed by many too. Timothy Wise has always been championing India's time to lead the talks. Considering our farmer suicide numbers and burden of undernutrition, nothing can be more important for us. How do you rate India's participation, Devinderji?
4: Well, I think it is very, very disappointing the minister might say anything because she has to justify her, her presence there and her role there. But the fact of the matter is that if the minister was strong, the talks would have failed. In any case, as we know, this is the first time we have a draft which is ambiguous, which is putting up both the opinions or the, or the viewpoints of the, the rich and the poor countries, or the developing countries, in, in a manner that it is accepted by everyone. This hasn't happened earlier. If I if am not mistaken, earlier it was just uh, take it or leave it package. You know, I remember in the uh, days of Dunkel draft. Uh, you know, the argument given to us was, uh, you know, this is the this is the only draft that you have to accept or reject it. So most of us, so most countries fell into that line of accepting it. Now we have a kind of a situation that we don't have to uh, go by take it or leave it or what is called single under- understanding or undertaking. And uh, now we have m- multiple kinds of opinions coming up. And this is, as I said earlier, is the beginning of the end, which means in the next negotiations, the, you know, this part will disappear quietly, the, the part that protects India's interest will disappear quietly and we will have uh, the new issues being uh, pumped in and uh, in justification with the FTAs and with those bilaterals or the, or the PPPs being signed, I think uh, that will become um, quite justifiable so we are heading towards that and i think um, the the biggest disappointment as far as i, I would look at it is the stand of india and if india had negotiated hard uh, you know in the in the in in, the, in that you know in that club also of five countries i'm sure uh, the, the 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 talks would have failed and we would have got something out of it now having lost that edge we are being told india should do the homework uh, much better for the next um, uh, summit i thought after 2013 they should have done the homework uh, for, you know for for this summit. So how long can we go on, uh, you know, finding an alibi for for our own failure?
0: Ranja? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, I mean, there is no way to defend uh, India's position, final position and what they signed on to, especially because they were part of that exclusive G5, which goes against all norms of multilateral negotiations. They participated in the G5 process, but even then when we look at the result it's it's so so disappointing and you know india has been often i mean in even in bali in here they are always a champion of developing countries and frankly not even in the wto negotiations in the post 2015 negotiations in the financing for development uh, you know final summit that uh, took place in Addis ababa in july this year India champions a lot of developing country issues, only to simply collapse at the last moment without any explanation. I think in, over these days of Nairobi negotiations, they also got a lot of support from uh, civil society. The African group, even towards the end, say they support, etc. And this time, in fact, I would say the G33 was probably stronger than they were in Nairobi, Though the Indonesian minister actually gave a statement that you know that really broke away from the G33 position, really weakening their position, but other G33 members were still holding strong. But I think it's in India's, you know, habit of going into these small green room discussions that actually breaks the unity, uh, maybe uh, of developing countries, but also then uh, ends up in their accepting that texts and here I mean on on some of they were being pressed very very hard the USA and the EU were of course at their aggressive best because as I told you right at the beginning you know the continuation of Doha and the pushing of new issues these were the two big issues. What we had on agriculture on the table was minuscule compared to these two issues. And the developed countries were going all out with their pressure tactics, divisive tactics. But uh, in the face of that pressure, or whatever it was, India's position went from the offensive, which is always the note that they start negotiations with, to very, very defensive. And I think at the end, we really ended up with a bad text. On agriculture, we don't have anything positive. And on the, de- on the declaration, on the Doha and new issues, we actually have very, very du- dubious, ambiguous, and very, very dangerous language.
1: Uh, Ranja, that really brings me to the segue of something that Devinderji said two years ago in Ravish Kumar's program. That is, India is a roaring mouse. And I think that's a phrase that he's coined about <laughs> India's pitching participation. <laughs> But having said that, for our listeners, G33 is the group of 33, which is actually comprising of 46 countries, and it is the coherence platform for joined up interest between developing and least developed countries. So every time India says, oh, we are alone, and there's too much of pressure, there's a bit of um, disingenuousness in that particular position, considering number one, the moral position of representing 1.2 billion people itself should give you enough negotiating power Forget about everything. But having 46 countries back you, having African nations look up to you, itself should give another moral position rather than constantly harp about being alone, being alone. Uh, going back to the discussion, Vipul.
5: Okay, in Nairobi, I think uh, given the situation uh, in which our delegation was in Nairobi, uh, they were under very under considerable pressure uh, to on various fronts. For example, one was the reaffirmation of the Doha Development Round. Secondly, there's the introduction of new issues. So those two were very, US and EU, they are pushing very strongly uh, on the inclusion of new issues. And they're also not very keen on the reaffirmation of Doha. So India was battling on those two fronts. And surprisingly, Brazil also uh, supported US and EU position on those two issues. Given that, I think what we could get in Nairobi, we need to take them as some kind of interim achievement and see to it that we push those issues in Geneva to get early solution as early as possible Solution on to get uh, a permanent solution for public stockholding for food security purposes and also a definitive agreement on special safeguard mechanism for protecting the interest of our farmers. On export competition and export subsidies, I think the Nairobi decision was very comprehensive. We should study that decision more carefully and see to it that how best we can utilize that decision to the advantage of our own agriculture.
1: Considering WTO is also writing the rules for manufacturing, services, public procurement, information technology, and the students' protest against private finance and in incursion of higher, in higher education and discontinuation of the non-net fellowships in India have been linked with the WTO rules too. What were the outcomes in services, manufacturing, IT in Nairobi declaration? Break it down for our listeners, Devinderji.
4: I think um, before we go on to, if you allow me, uh, Biraj, I think it's more important to look at uh, what has been the outcome at ag- in agriculture. Yes. And uh, why I wanted to flag off that is because a tweet by uh, Professor M.S. Swaminathan, the architect yes. of India's Green Revolution, I think is very, very important. And he has said in his tweet, and I, I will quote that, he says, Nairobi has paved the way for famines of the future.
1: This is a tweet he's given after the, this, uh, the declaration?
4: That's right. Oh. And, and now if Mr. Swaminathan says that, I think the world must uh, sit up and uh, take notice of what he's saying. And uh, India cannot just keep its eyes closed. And I think um, uh, I would completely agree with him uh, uh, on the issue of WTO. And I think what he is saying is very right, because the rich countries have managed to protect their subsidies, which means the food will always be subsidized that can be then uh, shipped across to us. And since we reduce our tariffs, um, they need more market access still, and uh, we will become dumping ground for that kind of food that comes into our country, which means when you import food, actually you import unemployment. And uh, so in in the years to come, it will have a terrible, terrible impact on on Indian agriculture. And uh, with no safeguards uh, uh, visible, let's say even two years later, Two thousand and seventeen uh, some people are expecting that something will happen, but I feel in the next six months or so the Doha declaration would be dead uh, for all practical um, purposes. so in that manner, it is quite obvious that um, uh, although the new issues that you talk about are some that are something that the developing countries are not keen to put it on the table so far and Although it is being said in the in the declaration finally that uh, this will be Done in consultation with everyone. But the, I think that, is, that has lost its meaning now because uh, if it was unanimous, it could have, uh, if it was a unanimous decision this time, the talks would have failed or uh, would have ensured the continuation of uh, the Doha development round and the spirit also. But uh, so to say that, you know, those new issues will be taken subsequently uh, by, by all, or everyone's approval. And as uh, you said in the very beginning, the biggest challenge is to this one country, one boat uh, phenomena. So I, having said that, I think uh, they would succeed in pushing for their new issues. But uh, to us in, in India, uh, I think the bigger issue is the survival of agriculture and also how to maintain countries' food security. Now, I think what is being missed out is, this uh, WTO is happening uh, or the uh, outcome or the kind of uh, obligation that we have to undertake are happening in, in simultaneously at a time when the World Bank and IMF and the, and the other uh, IFIs, uh, uh, international financial institutions, are putting up uh, pressure for a, the same set of policies that the WTO will legalize or will have, because it has legal teeth, uh, will, will try to bring in. Now, why I'm saying this is because uh, in the days to come, if we have to push farmers out of agriculture, that's what the World Bank also wants. Uh, you know, where are the jobs? Which means you are heading the country or leading the country towards a socio-economic crisis and also political, that we are not even sure what will happen. Just singing the songs in favor of uh, international trade the way it is, I think is going to be more worrisome for a country for India uh, or country like India than I think uh, uh, the small, small gains that we might expect uh, from, from uh, you know, from other kind of issues that
1: will be put on the table. And if you remember, Sachin, actually in the curtain-raiser episode, actually quoted Turkish economist Danny Roderick saying that trade has been really detrimental for international growth, especially in developing countries. So I think you, you're you exactly, that's what is also uh, echoing Danny Rodrik's sentiments and his research and findings.
5: No, I don't have the figure uh, right now in front of me, I mean... But it is true that in Adobe, there is this agreement which was which was reached on the information technology products. India is not part of this agreement. India was part of the first agreement on information technology products. And there are some concern which was raised by our industry bodies that as a result of that agreement, our information technology industry suffered. But uh, India, as I said, India is not part of this ITA-2. It's a plurilateral agreement of 53 countries. And uh, some estimate, as you have rightly said, that says that $1.3 trillion new commerce should be generated as a result of this agreement. If I was uh, in our negotiating position, then I would have perhaps uh, did a study to see that if India was part of it, what could have been the gain that we could get out of it. But since India is not part of this agreement, so uh, uh, we don't have to open up our IT sector, IT product sector any further. But we could gain access to the markets of those countries who are part of this agreement, because this agreement is open, the market access will be given even to non-members. so we need to see how best we can utilize it to the advantage of ours. Now here the important point is that this is the old sectoral uh, argument which us was put forward in during in Hong Kong and even after Hong Kong as we negotiated the Doha Development Round, and U.S. was made clear that they are interested in this sector. The other sector where U.S. is very keen is the environmental goods. So on these two sectors, they are going for this plurilateral agreement, and I think that is their negotiating strategy, and we should understand the strategy in a better manner and see to it that how best we can utilize them for the benefit of the Indian economy.
1: So uh, Ranja, do you, would you like to discuss a bit about what's happening on the $1.3 trillion in IT and what's um, in the, uh, up on the cards or for services and education and manufacturing?
0: Yeah, but I think while on agriculture, because Devinderji has raised a very, very important point, because agriculture is a critical issue for uh, India, as well as um, most developing countries and least developed countries. And for
1: our our listeners, uh, one of the uh, arguments which is always given by mainstream economists is that agriculture only contributes 13% to the uh, GDP, which is why it should get 13% of attention. But something that Devinderji has been highlighting is that if it is still the main sustenance of 53% of the population, then it should be getting 53% of the attention. If you,
4: uh, I, I just want to add here, yeah, Adiraj, you, you rightly said that 13% uh, you know, uh,
1: contribution to contribution the GDP versus the, the number of people at, it sustains. At,
4: yeah, look at look at it. You know, the, the Indian economist will tell you that uh, the agriculture only has a share of 13% in India's GDP. But if you look at America, America's share of agriculture in the GDP is only 4%. So America should be talking only 4%. But look at it, America is fighting, you know, so hard to protect its agriculture. So there is a kind of a, what should I say, deception by the Indian economists when they tell us that, you know, we should forget about Indian agriculture. To America, nobody's telling that they should forget about the
0: agriculture.
1: Right. Ranja, um, another, another.
0: Yes. To add to that, it's not only, you know, what it's contributing in terms of GDP, but how many people are dependent on it for incomes and livelihoods and how many people, everybody is dependent on this sector for food. I mean, so, you know, the dependence and the importance of agriculture really goes well beyond its contribution to the GDP. So, quickly, just to highlight, was what was there for agriculture in this negotiation because that's what India had pitched. It had wanted two things in agriculture, which was supposed to be its main uh, offensive interest in this negotiation. One was they wanted the permanent solution and on the public stockholding program, you know, where our subsidies uh, given through the minimum support price to our farmers, many of them small farmers, are being challenged by the USA and the EU and the developed countries. And in Bali, we had only got a peace clause. but ridden with a whole number of conditionalities which makes it very difficult for us to use and so India really wanted a permanent solution in terms of a permanent waiver of these subsidies from WTO subsidy reduction commitments did they get it no I mean, at best, what they have got is we will continue to talk. And in fact, in Bali, it was clear that by 2017, this permanent solution had to be delivered. And here, we do not actually see. I mean, it's based on the Bali declaration and also the agreement of the General Council last year. But it does not clearly spell out that this permanent solution must be reached in 2017. The other thing they wanted is a special safeguard mechanism. You know, developing countries have been asking for that. That because when they face sudden surges in import they need to raise their duties so that their farmers and agriculture sector can be protected from that very uh, large import surge which would really lower the prices in the in the domestic market now what happened i mean they actually kept lowering i mean the g33 in its Kind of you know uh, proposals had actually diluted the demand, and at the end, just before Nairobi, they wanted only the SSG, which is an existing instrument which developed, I mean mainly developed countries, 39 member countries of the WTO already use. So they said, let us just use that mechanism which many of you are already using, just with some special and differential treatment. But they did not get even that, they just got what? We will continue to talk, and we have been talking for 20 years now. So, they on their, uh, you know, on the areas of interest in agriculture, India did not get anything, but we have there is an agreement of elimination of export subsidies. Overall, this helps. We would want export subsidies to be eliminated. But frankly, it does not mean much, because the developed countries who use export subsidies, for example, the EU really uses export subsidies, they have actually reduced them. And they mainly distort the market and undercut our farmers' prices with their domestic subsidies. But domestic subsidies, they refuse to discuss. So even when we were negotiating before Nairobi, leading up to the ministerial domestic support discussions, which is domestic subsidies, discussion completely fell off because the USA and EU refused to discuss that. And that's what matters. So this thing on export subsidies, will really not pinch the US-EU much. In fact, US has got very good terms in the other pillars of export competition, which is export credit. They continue to give on the, on the same terms as their domestic rules. And even on you know uh, food aid and things like that, they have got terms favorable to themselves. The USA has got a very good deal. And we will lose because our export subsidies, etc., on sugar, for example, those will have to go. So in agriculture, whatever we wanted, we did not get. And we have been actually pushed back on the other components and um, services, etc. Maybe we can just discuss after this.
1: Um, for our listeners, I think it will be very important and probably extremely interesting to actually find, be a fly on the wall in that green room. I mean, exactly what does it take for a Michael Froman, the chief negotiator of U.S., to be so cynical, to be so selfish, and still manage to push in all their agenda when China and India continue to say that we are not used to this pressure and we come under extreme pressure. So... And and Guardian has written, Kevin Watkins has written a brilliant piece in Guardian about how forget exactly, continuing with the narrative of skepticism that Devinderji and Ranja are sharing for our listeners. WTO has always been about internationalism. The behavior has always been mercantilistic, as if these countries want access to everyone else's market, but would love to close their own markets as with as high walls and high tar- uh, sub- uh, import duties and and duties as possible. So this quota-free, duty-free trade is just a slogan. So going forward, Devinderji, what do you think was the road ahead and what should especially our listeners, me, our children, our shared destinies hold?
4: Well, very important uh, question, I must say, and uh, first of all, I think uh, if you can divide this question into two or three parts, one is, what can we expect from the government and secondly, what can we expect from, or what the people should be expecting uh, after this, uh, the outcome of the Nairobi and so on. Uh, First of all, the government. I think uh, we have been put on the mat and uh, it has come out very clearly that the government of India has been a failure. And uh, I don't know whether they have the courage to really pick up uh, from where they have left. Uh, I think uh, we are going to give in more and more as it is. uh, That's what I see on the horizon. Uh, having said that uh, if we if we move on to the personal uh, aspects and see how it happens to you and me and so on, I think the biggest uh, uh, assault would be on the on the livelihood security of the farmers the The dairy farmers, as well as the, the farmers who are cultivating crops, they are going to be hard hit. Uh, we are in any way pushing them out of uh, agriculture. Uh, so now this will become more handy uh, for the government to bring in that kind of policies that uh, the world, they were that they have been actually contesting at WTO, but uh, uh, unanimously trying to implement in India like uh, removing the uh, You know the, the bonus on uh, the minimum support price and so on And I think now the attack would be to reduce the minimum support price uh, still further Or or cap it uh, at the level that it has already been um, you know uh, It's already there that is one thing second thing uh, you know most of us I think should be very clear that uh, over in year, you know, as, as we go along we will now be uh, basing our food security on uh, food imports uh, there are economists in India who have been suggesting that India should lower the duties on milk we need to import milk because of our higher inflation here they are saying we need to import chicken legs uh, because um, uh, the chicken is expensive here and we import uh, we need to reduce duties to import uh, fruits and vegetables so what is left so we will now have more and more uh, uh, such pressure, which means uh, our food security, whatever we buy off the shelf, would be actually coming in from the, from the Western countries. And that is what, uh, when Frohman was trying to say, what he was trying to say was because there are about 30 federations uh, in America who look after export federations who are exporting beef or wheat or rice or whatever. And they are the ones who are putting pressure on, on, on America, saying that you must force India to do with the minimum support price because as long as the farmers remain economical uh, you know the farming remains economical because they're getting a minimum support price then uh, their, their market is being affected it means the the um, the the commercial interest of those farmers in america are being affected so i think uh, that's what india is now gradually going to and uh, so we will see an influx of uh, of more imports coming in.
1: Didn't you? Didn't you say again uh, two years ago when the retail FDI and foreign direct investment in retail was uh, a burning hot topic that India cannot be the sales a country of sales boys. It seems with this the way forward would be that it be, does become a country of sales boys or sales girls. Is it?
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, we are a country who has been making a lot of noise uh, outside. Uh, for, for the public gallery uh, and uh, when we get on to re- real negotiations uh, we are a failure and uh, subsequent uh, negotiations not only uh, in Nairobi, you will see like like 2013 uh, at uh, uh, bali prior to that uh, cancun look at cancun about 2003 you know a small country like kenya Uh, you know, was able to walk out and the talks collapse. A a big country and a superpower, uh, the country which claims it is a superpower, uh, refuses to, uh, you know, uh, or let's say refuses to stand up and accepts whatever is given to it. Uh, So I think uh, it really tells us the role that uh, we are taking on. So we are a a country which I think should re-look into into our negotiation skills or take a position uh, which is demonstrative of, of what we claim as a superpower.
1: Ranja? way forward
0: yeah in the way forward Biraj I think it also the first uh, set of issues I wanted to talk about other questions that you were raising which we did did not answer is on the NAMA the industrial negotiations and on services right so the first the i mean you know because the nairobi ministerial was so fraught with discussions on the continuation of doha round and new issues and only uh, a package on agriculture ldcs and some special differential treatment etc were on the table so discussions on nama which is Uh, industrial products actually, liberalisation in industrial products and services, GATS which is the general agreement in trading services, so both industry and services discussions had fallen off the table, but now we are definitely going to be looking at these elements coming back, you know there were large Protests in India leading up to Nairobi on how the government of India had put education as an offer in the services liberalization uh, discussions. And those issues are going to be slowly brought back as we resume talks of liberalization in agriculture, industry, and services. And during Nairobi, one significant agreement was signed, which is the ITA 2, which is the International Technology Agreement. You know, it's a plurilateral agreement by that it's it's an by that i mean that it's an agreement signed only a few countries and you know because in the wto it has been difficult for the developed countries to push to what they wanted they have pushed more and more plurilateral agreements so there are a lot of these agreements which is the trade in services agreement tsa then there's ita so india was part of ita 1 we did very very badly so while for example our services in the computer and related services we are doing very well why our manufacturing has collapsed i mean in many of these uh, industries where India could have done well, it collapsed because India signed ITA-1. Thankfully, they realized this folly, and India is not part of ITA-2. But again, there will be huge pressure from inside India and outside from the developed countries to get it to join ITA2 and ITA2 was signed in Nairobi uh, as, a, as a side agreement, uh, not part of the main negotiations. Um, but also I want to say future as we look ahead, I think Devinderji very correctly gave us warning signals about what will happen to agriculture and um, he has mentioned how agriculture actually is going to be affected by this deep tariff liberalization that's going to be pushed on us but i wanted to draw attention to a very important linkage between what happens to agriculture sector and the new issues we think you know what are these new issues they have nothing to do with Agriculture, per se. Agriculture is a separate negotiation that we are doing. But we are not. The new issues, for example, will include, as I said, Singapore issues, which is a multilateral agreement, say, on investment, a multilateral agreement on government procurement, competition policy. All these will matter for agriculture. You know that from foreign direct investment, already India has number of FTAs and investment treaties. And under these, they have to give the foreign investors. So these, these are these big multinational com- companies with huge financial power they get very strong rights under these investment agreements which means that if the government of India had to change any policy they would actually be challenging they can take the government to court in international arbitration cases it's already happening now if we go for these new issues and a multilateral agreement under the WTO it will happen on a multilateral framework which is much much Uh, more dangerous because of its size extent and its impact will be much deeper and you know now the cases that are being fought over these investment treaties more than 50 percent of them are in natural resources in issues on land land grab water pollution and water grabbing you know so which are essential issues for agriculture if the land goes India does not permit for example um, any foreign direct investment in agricultural production now but if an agreement like that on investment goes through, it will not talk only about foreign investors' protection, but also market access, which means so, you so, have to allow FDI in every so sector, basically agriculture. So
1: basically, bleak future, and like both of you are saying, that India negotiators really need to play hard and also need to do their homework much better. What do you think Nairobi means for the road ahead, and how is it going to impact your
5: and my future, our children's future, Vipul. Okay, I think Kevin is right. Yeah, uh, it is a mercantilist world. So uh, it's not just in Nairobi. Uh, even before that, uh, since the Uruguay Round negotiation, even before that, since the inception of GATT, we are seeing that this mercantilist uh, behavior. So mm-hmm. there is uh, nothing new in it except that Nairobi has reiterated, and it came out more clearly, the mercantilist uh, approach uh, to the subject of uh, trade. So I'm not very much concerned about that. What I'm concerned about is that how India, particularly, is going to play uh, its role in Geneva in uh, in, in future negotiations. One is that for all practical purposes uh, the Doha development round is, is over, right? Now some people are saying that, well, the Doha round may be over, but the Doha round issues are alive and we need to find solution to them. Even I am not very sure about how we're going to take forward those Doha round issues simply because the United States, uh, they are not interested in taking forward those issues in a manner in which we would like to see them. On the other hand, they are also very keen to introduce new issues. Therefore, what we need to see to do studies on those new issues, like investment policy, like competition policy, and see how best they can serve our own interest. So I would like to put it in like this, uh, that we have uh, defensive interests on agriculture and we should try to get solutions, try to get negotiated solutions on our interests on agriculture as soon as possible based on Nairobi decision. On the other hand, we we should have offensive interest on other areas, on industrial goods, on services, on investment, and many other sectors. And we should see that how our interests can be served if we go for negotiations on those issues.
1: Thank you, yes. very, thank you very much for joining us. And that was our WTO stock take. Considering one of the most important conferences got the least media coverage, especially on the back of Paris COP coverage, well, we are proud to dedicate two R-plus episodes to this. First as curtain raiser and then as a stock take. If this doesn't make the case for such explainer series, then nothing will. So, dear listeners, please share and promote and support such shows. Thank you. In the next episode, we shall talk something extremely important, data, accountability and censorship, new forms of censorship and what it does to development. We would like to wish our listeners a very happy and healthy 2016. Let me wish our dear listeners and all something one of my Irish friends offered me. May the best of your past be the worst of your future. Repeat, may the best of your past be the worst of your future. We would like to thank our collaborator Save the Children India, a leading non-profit dedicated to the agenda of children for their support in bringing this episode to you. This is part of their campaign Action 2015 for just deals and a just world order for us all. A big shout out to Kartik Nijhavan of Team News Laundry for producing this episode. And all the reference readings of this episode will be available on the Global Summit's page of News Laundry website. So, if you are listening to this on SoundCloud, then you need to check the webpage for the readings. Please write to us, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and support independent media. So, you can decide where we are going. This is Birad Swain signing off for Global Summits.
0: Catch all new episodes of Global Summits, Where Are We Going? on newslaundry.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook.